Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Paul, and um, I've been on holidays for the last three weeks, and it's good to be back. In September of 2016, one of my daughters was attending the Australian Business Week. Uh, it was with her school, uh, she was year 10 doing business, it was part of her school, an all-girls school, and she was meeting up with an all-boys school. And at the end of the week, she was so appalled at the behaviour, she wrote a letter. Let me read to you part of the letter my daughter wrote. Dear teenage boy, after spending a week participating in the ABW, Australian Business Week, I've gained more experience and memories than I thought I would have possible. Dear teenage boy, after spending a week participating in the ABW, I've learned that not all teenage boys are loyal, good, caring and gentlemen. Your school portrays you to be. Dear teenage boy, in the past week of participating in the ABW, I've received comments I thought unthinkable. Comments such as, maybe you shouldn't be the CEO. CEO. We should get a guy to be uh, the CEO because he'll be able to control the group. You're a girl, so you, can't, so you can take the notes. Can you clean our table? Us guys need to get on with the important stuff. I don't understand why girls even participate in this. They should be in the kitchen. Dear teenage boy, I'm done with you doing the manly thing. I'm done with you doing the manly thing and me doing the girly thing. Maybe 50 or even 20 years ago, I would have gone along with that, but not today. I'm smart, I'm strong, I'm educated, I'm a leader. Unlike you, I work harder than anyone else for my job. Unlike you, I work harder than anyone else and still not paid equally. Unlike you, I will be stereotyped and judged without even opening my mouth. Unlike you, this week I've been called a bitch, slut and skank all in one week. Dear future employer, I am adequate. Dear teenage boy, enough is enough. I am enough. That's my girl. <laughs> Sexism is defined as an ideology based on the belief that one sex is superior, superior to another. Sexism can be, affect anyone, but primarily affects women and girls. Examples of sexism may include control, insults, stalking, threats, shaming, sexualization of women, excluding and making invisible, condoning violence against women, comments of appearance, or made to feel disempowered or diminished. Extreme sexism may foster sexual harassment, rape, and other forms of sexual violence. There's another wave hitting our schools at the moment of sexism. If you would have spoke to me 12 months ago about a man called Andrew Tate, I would have had no idea who you were talking about. 
I don't have TikTok. I don't have Facebook. I don't have Instagram. But this time last year, he went to becoming one of the most watched figures on the internet. One of the most famous figures in TikTok, where his videos were watched 11.6 billion times. His persona is one of outlandish machoism and sexual prowess over women, who are regarded as property of men. He's a champion of the hyper-alpha male productivity with his online course, Hustler University. Andrew Tate says women belong in the home, can't drive, and are a man's property. He also thinks that rape victims must bear responsibility for their attacks and dates women 18 to 19 because he can make an imprint on them, according to the videos posted. In other clips, the British-American kickboxer who poses with fast cars, guns, and betrays himself as a cigar-smoking playboy talks about hitting and choking women, trashing their belongings, and stopping them from going out. But the 35-year-old is not this fringe personality lurking in some obscure, dark corner of the web. It was on TikTok. 11.6 billion times. He saw himself as a self-help guru, offering his most, mostly male fans a recipe for making money, pulling girls, and escaping the matrix. Tate has gone, in a matter of months, from near obscurity to one of the most talked about people in the world. Tate's views have been described as extreme misogyny by domestic abuse charities capable of radicalising men and boys to commit harm offline. Let me just give you a few of his quotes. Nine gets you a dinner out, a six gets a glass of water when referring to women. The masculine perspective is you have to understand that life is war. It's a war for the female you want. It's a war for the car you want. It's a war for the money you want. It's a war for status. Masculine life is war. One of the best things about being a man is being territorial and be able to say, that is mine. I have everything every man has ever dreamed of. I've got a big mansion, I've got supercars, I can live anywhere I want, I've got unlimited women, I go where I want, I do anything I want all the time. I'm so, amazed, I'm so an amazing role model. Followed by millions of men and school children. His appeal among teenage boys and young men is perhaps explained as a response to the culture that is critical of masculinity. I want you to do just a little experiment for me at the moment. What is the word that you put in front of your mind when I say the word masculinity? You got it? Is it toxic? Toxic masculinity. That's the way that our culture over the last number of years has seen any masculinity. All masculinity is toxic. 
Daisy Cousins is a well-recognised opinion commentator who appears regularly at a guest on Sky News as has been publishing in the leading Australian publications. She notes this. Given the disdain for men and boys that has permeated popular culture for the past several years and the lack of traditional masculine male role, role models, it's hardly surprising adolescent boys are gravitating towards uber-macho Tate. My son-in-law. I asked him whether he knew much about Andrew Tate. He teaches a five, six class, years five and six. He writes this. I remember a number of boys in my class loved Andrew Tate. Noah in particular spread the message. What drew him in was the ideas of money equals success. Andrew Tate's whole thing is money is everything. Money means power. Boys wanted the same. They saw that Tate did what he wanted, said what he wanted, treated people the way he wanted because he had money. The boys copied what he said, spoke how people, uh, how they imagined he spoke to people. They idolised the power he had and wanted to feel the same. The boys were disgusting. They spoke about things they didn't understand. They had ideas about women they didn't understand. They were striving for a lifestyle they didn't understand. I hear teachers of kids in years three and four classes talking about hearing about him as well. I think his online presence makes it easier for kids to access. I usually find the boys without serious male role models in their lives that take it on most. They're building their ideas of what a man is off what Tate talks about. Andrew Tate was arrested last year uh, in Romania with his brother, Tristan. The Romanian prosecutors said the four suspects appeared to have created an organised crime group with the purpose of recruiting, housing, exploiting women by forcing them to create pornographic content meant to be seen on specialised website, websites for a cost. I wonder how many people have been wronged, who are hurting, who are suffering because of sexism. I wonder how many, even in here, feel this way. Sexism uh, and abuse, whether it be sexual, social, emotional, cultural, spiritual, financial... Extreme sexism is having an impact in Australia. Listen to these stats. One in two Australian women have experienced sexual harassment. Women are, most, women are almost three times more likely than men to have experienced violence inflicted by a partner since the age of 15. Family violence and or intimate partner violence is a leading cause of serious injury, disability and death for women in Australia. On average, one woman is, a week is killed by an intimate male partner. Additionally, one in four women have experienced violence by an intimate partner or family member. It's so wrong. It's so wrong. A wrong picture of power, 
a wrong picture that we see towards women. So let me take you to a, a much better picture. Let me take you to another story, another man. A man who had very different attitudes towards women and power. If you have your Bibles open, let's have a look at Mark chapter 8, verses 21 to 43. We're looking at a section of the book of Mark where Jesus is up against the forces that humans are unable to control. We've just seen him up against the power of nature, the raging storm, and he quietens it with a word. We've seen him cast out demons with a word. In our section today, we're going to see Jesus, see him clearly for who he is and know how to respond to him as he responds to that of sickness and of death towards In a few hours, Jesus meets three people that we're told about in Mark, all of which help us to see the right view of women, how to use power, and what good cultural influence looks like. You see, Jesus was in a culture at that time where women were not seen well. Josephus, the first century historian, Jewish historian states that the law holds women to be inferior in all matters and that therefore women should be submissive. Philo, the first century uh, Alexandrian Jewish philosopher and biblical commentator, uh, he refers to uh, his, throughout his writings to women and female trouts as examples of weakness. Philo goes on to argue that women ought to stay at home desiring a life of seclusion. Syrac, Another writer of the time presents women as, neither, as either as good wives or as a problem. It even states that better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. It is a woman who brings shame and disgrace. This is the culture that Jesus is in and the way that women are viewed. And it's against this negative picture, can I just say, not necessarily a one that comes from Judaism, but the Greco-Roman culture of misogyny that has impacted on the Jewish nation. Uh, this view of women, Jesus turns on its head. As Jesus gets out of the boat, we see there in verse one, there's a large crowd. One in the crowd would have been known, a ruler of the synagogue a man of significant status. He would have been respected, probably wealthy. He would have been used to people bowing down to him. Yet as we read there, he comes and bows down. He falls at Jesus' feet. He's not, wor not worried about what people think of him. Here is a man who is desperate. He demonstrates his utter need. Here is a father whose heart is breaking. For we read in verse 23, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. For those who are parents, you know that desperation, don't you? Those moments when your kids are unwell, at the point of death, and you just want to hold them. You will do whatever you can to care for them. 
This man knows he's run out of options. He knows that he needs help. He's at the end of his resources. Doctors have said there is nothing she could, they can do. She is going to die. And so this man of astonishing power himself pleads and falls at the knees of Jesus. Such astonishing faith. If you know anything about the book of Mark, Mark makes it very clear that Jesus is on a mission. He's on a mission from God at his baptism. God says, this is my beloved son. Uh, This is a mission that has cosmic proportions. Jesus is bringing about the kingdom of God. He's come to save the world through the cross. Mark describes him as a great warrior and, and he's on the way to save these people. But what does he do? He stops and takes time to heal a little girl. Jesus goes with him. We meet our second person that Mark introduces us, a desperate woman. You can imagine the crowd, can't you? Jesus walking along with the crowd, Jairus kind of, please get out of the way, move aside, Jesus is coming through, he's got to get there, and you can just imagine in Jairus' mind, I've got to get him there quick. Please get out of the road. Pressing in around him, Mark draws our attention to another in the crowd, someone that was barely noticed. Someone that wouldn't have been known, and she probably would have wanted it that way. Someone who had been bleeding for 12 years. Most likely a gynecological problem, a problem of having a constant period. Not able to leave from home. Going and visiting doctor after doctor to try and get some help. All her hopes dashed suffering under many doctors, and she hears about Jesus, if she could just touch him. If she could just touch him. But she knows that even that, even that is forbidden. For those who are bleeding, for them it was being quarantined from the temple, being set apart from people. They weren't allowed to touch people. If they came into the temple, it was, they were unclean. But she reaches out and she touches. Look there in verse 21. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered under the many physicians and had spent all that time she had and was no better than, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, came up behind the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of a disease. Here is a picture of power like the world has never seen. Just by touching a garment. For this woman who was crushed, probably abused, for her here, the shame of it all, probably exploited, 
here in the face of the most powerful man she's ever met, she comes trembling before him. Because Jesus calls out, who touched my garments? You can see the disciples going, look, you see the crowd pressing around you and you say, who touched your garments? There's so many people around you here, Jesus. Anyone could have touched. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Listen to these beautiful words of Jesus. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Here is a man of immense power. And how does he use his power? For the sake of a woman. Then we get introduced to the third, a little girl. But as we read here, in all that moments where Jesus has been held up, a messenger comes. The girl is dead. You can imagine Jairus, just desperate, desperate for his girl, wanting to get Jesus there, and it's all come to a crashing end. What does Jesus say? Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe. So Jesus goes to the house as we read. When he arrives there, people are weeping and wailing loudly. And as he entered, he says, why all the commotion, why all the weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laugh at him. Not a laugh of joy, but a laugh of, you've got to be joking. But he puts everyone else out and there was this beautiful, intimate moment. He goes in with the parents. And he t- takes the child's hand and he says, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, just like in verse 29, immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Why wouldn't you be overcome with amazement? Here is one who has been brought back from death. Such astonishing power. But it's also a very clear picture, isn't it? Here is Jesus who cares for those of low social status. Here is Jesus that turns away from Jairus, a a religious male high social status, to meet the needs of a woman whose gender and illness render her of little value in society's standards. As both a female and a child, Jairus' daughter would also be of low social pecking order. Through Jesus willing to touch and heal those two women, he challenges the social norms. But he also demonstrates the restorative power, the inclusivity of the kingdom of God. As followers of Jesus, we are called to treat all people, whatever their position, status, with respect compassion, and to break down barriers that divide and alienate. Jesus' treatment of women was revolutionary. 
That's why they flock to him. Wherever he went, they sought him out. Women sat at his feet and tugged at his robes. They came for healing, for forgiveness, and for answers. Jesus saw women not as risks, liabilities, or burdens. Jesus invites them to draw near. Jesus knew the great value of women. If you flip back with me to the beginning of Genesis, that first reading that we had, in page 2, at verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Why was it very good? Because he had created the pinnacle of his creation, male and female. Created what? Created in the image of God. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image. Let, let us after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven. Here, God creates and Jesus knows that both male and female are equal and created with great dignity. They are valuable. In a recent interview with the BBC, just at the end of last year, the BBC went and interviewed Andrew Tate. He was still under house arrest and still is to this day. It's interesting, he was cancelled by society. They took down all his posts. He's now under house arrest. But listen to these comments in the middle of the interview. The comments to be taken, uh, he denied making these comments and to be taken as sarcasm, not to be taken seriously. He insisted that he was genuinely a force for good in the world. Let me repeat what he said. I am genuinely a force for good in the world. You may not understand it yet, but you will eventually. I genuinely believe I am acting under the instruction of God to do good things, and I want to make the world a better place. There is one that does make a better place. And his name is Jesus. Friends, we ought to be a people that are concerned for the real and utter tragic abuse that too many women experience at the hands of men. Some of this abuse happens in churches. In Christian marriages, and it's terrible. It's a terrible evil. The Bible condemns all relational violence and abuse as a distortion of God's good design, warning men in particular in 1 Peter that failing to honour women will bring spiritual repercussions. We Christians must actively and adamantly affirm this. There is absolutely no excuse for the abuse of women or indeed men by husbands, church leaders or anyone else. Let us bring the gospel to bear upon this injustice so that it may be exposed, so that ultimately forgiveness and healing may abound in Christ. Secondly, we need to have a better view of masculinity. Our steward in his book, The Manual, talks about masculinity. The man who has a healthy masculinity cares for others. The truly masculine man makes those around him feel safe. 
Isn't that what we saw with Jesus? Mark 10.45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Unto death would he serve. But thirdly, do you know, I think it'd be easy from this passage to actually have a small view of Jesus. That Jesus is just another ideology, a story, a means of helping us to understand how we view women. But did you notice Jairus and the woman on their knees? See, Jesus is not just a story or an ideology. He's a person. He's someone that wants to be in relationship with us who loves us unto death. Friends, my prayer is that we might have eyes to see this Jesus clearly, that we might put our trust in him and live the way he wants. Let me pray. Father, give us eyes to see Jesus clearly. Help us to put our trust in him. Help us to follow him. Amen.